Well, God made it, we broke it, and Jesus fixes it. This is the story of the world. This is the big picture of the Bible from beginning to end. This is the gospel simply put. God made it, we broke it, Jesus fixes it. Yet perhaps it's too simple sometimes, too simple for the person who is a Christian and has just been diagnosed with an aggressive debilitating condition. Perhaps it's too simple for the couple who've just had a stillborn child. Perhaps it's too simple for the mother with the rebellious wayward son whose behavior is breaking her heart. Perhaps it's too simple for the man who's just lost his job and in his late 50s, he's not as employable as a younger man. Life in the world, a lot of the time, can be hard. There is, of course, thank you, there is, of course, a place for a short, simply put statement of basic biblical truth. God made it. We broke it. Jesus fixes it. But sometimes this doesn't quite match up with our everyday experience. For if this statement is the case, as it is, we can feel a bit lost in the middle. We understand the brokenness of the world. We see it in the disease, the disaster, the death all around us. We see it too in the sins of others. And even at times we see it as we're aware of our own sin. There is brokenness. But we believe in Jesus, the one who fixes it. So why is life still so hard? Maybe even harder than it was before you called yourself a Christian. Well, praise God, uh, he hasn't just sent down from heaven a one-line summary of the history of the world. He's given us 66 books in one big story. And so much of it, in nuanced ways, addresses the sufferings of God's people in a fallen world. Someone has said, we don't learn from suffering itself what God might be doing or teaching us. We learn from the Bible what God is doing with our suffering and how God's people should respond, not resorting to bitterness or confusion or grumbling or despair. Well, the passage before us comes in the context of suffering. And the call for the Christian is, as you look at it, there's no prizes for guessing. As it's so obvious, the call for us is to be patient. Four times we read of patience in verses 7 to 11, and the related term steadfastness twice in verse 11. Now, if like me, when you're having a hard time or you really want something and someone says, have patience, or don't be so impatient, or patience is a virtue, or you know, good things come to those who wait. When someone says that, it's usually more likely to rankle you than motivate or encourage you. And so we've a bit of work to do here uh, with James. But we'll see there are great reasons to be patient as we make our way through. But first, let's think a little bit about what patience is. We might think that patience is just about waiting and more about the attitude we have as we wait for something as in we wait calmly rather than frustratedly. And there are many occasions, as I'm sure you will be aware in everyday life, that serve as a test to just how patient we are. When you're sitting in traffic, maybe you're coming along the, my end of it, the corner road, or your end of it, the Parkgate Road, and you're wanting to do 60, but the car in front is tooting along at 35 miles per hour. Maybe you're the one in doing 35. <laughs> Uh, think of young children uh, waiting for a birthday or waiting for Christmas, kids counting down the days or the, the number of sleeps. Uh, or maybe when you're on the phone and you're put on hold and the music plays and it plays and then there's a break and you think, oh, finally someone's going to answer the phone and instead it's the automated 
your call is very important to us. Please continue to hold. 20 minutes later, you start to wonder, is it really important to them after all? And your patience is tested. Maybe you're a stickler for timekeeping, and if you've arranged to meet someone and they're more than two minutes late, you find resentment building inwardly as you wait. Patience does involve waiting, but it is so much more than simply waiting. The patience described here in James 5 involves a whole change of life focus. Let me put it like this. There's different kinds of waiting. Waiting for a letter versus waiting for a package that has to be signed for or a delivery that you have to be in for. Uh, You can go about your business when you're waiting for a letter, a birthday card, or someone said they've sent you a postcard. It doesn't matter whether you're there or not. The postman can just put it through your letterbox. As long as you've got a letterbox, of course, most people do. Uh, Whereas if you've ordered something and it's a special delivery, a special item, it needs to be signed for, or someone's coming out to install something or fix something in your house, you've been allocated a slot, and sometimes you go and you check, there's an email or a text, and it says your delivery slot will be Thursday sometime between 8 a.m. and 7 p.m. And you think, what? That's not that specific. And yet this type of waiting for you is not passive. If you really want that delivery, if you really want that thing installed, whatever it is, you have to plan your life around it, at least for that day. It might even affect various arrangements in your week. Well, this is the type of waiting and patience James has in mind, where your life is reorganized around the event in question. And the event in question is not the the delivery of a parcel or the arrival of a tradesman, but the arrival of the coming Lord. And so our first point this evening is be patient because of the coming Lord, verses 7 and 8. Be patient, therefore, we read, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. A living today shaped by what we know is coming in the future. And this is a call to live with hope that our current situation, your current situation of struggle, is not the end of the story. It's clear that those James first wrote to were in the midst of struggle. It's even obvious by the very call to be patient, which would only be made in situations where impatience and despair might be the natural go-to responses. No one ever said, be patient to someone sitting sunbathing by a pool, sipping a cocktail. So the very command to be patient shows us things were not all rosy for this Christian church. The therefore as it begins, also gives us a window into the immediate context. If you can remember back to last time, we considered James' message of condemnation to the ungodly, worldly rich. We had the sense of listening in, the point being that we would not envy their way of life. We thought about how money talks, and for those in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, it speaks in evidence against them. They've selfishly hoarded their gold and silver, verse 3. We're told it will corrode, and this corrosion will be evidence against them. Verse 4, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The unpaid harvesters are crying out to the Lord for mercy. And it could very much be the case that those James writes to include the unpaid harvesters, refugees in a foreign land because of persecution. They're wondering where's our next meal coming from? They've been continually oppressed by the rich, according to James. And he's saying to them, this won't always be the case. The rich will get their comeuppance. Be patient. Don't return like for like. Don't try to copy their wicked behavior to get on in life. Continue to live righteously. 
hang in there until the Lord comes, then all will be changed. The New Testament is filled with references to the return of Christ, with various details about, uh, about it, but James doesn't get into any of that here. He, can, he just assumes that his readers know about it. He simply calls it the coming of the Lord. And remember, this is his own brother, Jesus, he's talking about, and yet he calls him Lord. Earlier in the letter, he called him the Lord of glory. Therefore, the fact that it is the Lord coming, the Lord, the one who is in control of all things, that means that suffering will become a thing of the past. And so this coming would bring comfort and joy to those who are his people. James's call to be patient is a call to live your life in such a way that it is organized around the expectation of this coming. And he gives an illustration in the second part of verse 7, which should be easy enough uh, for us to make sense of around these parts. He points to the example of the farmer. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Imagine a, a number of you are either from a farming family yourself or you know those who are. Connor is a little village surrounded by farmland. We could ask the question, why do farmers farm? One me reason might be because, well, it's in your blood. You've grown up with it. Your father farmed, your grandfather farmed. Uh, and of course, that's true. But it's also true that farmers do it for the harvest. That's the end goal, a prosperous harvest. You're thinking about harvest in the next couple of weeks here and across the road in Kells. Whether it's barley or some other grain or fruit or for the livestock farmers, it's the end goal of once your animals are fattened up enough, they're ready to be taken to the market. And so with the market day in view or the gathering in of the harvest in view, farmers live and work. They're up early. They're putting meal out, they're shoveling dirt out of sheds, they're moving sheep to another field to eat more grass, they're getting your silage ready for winter. Life is organized around the end goal of turning a profit at the market or selling on your crop. And in all that, there's a lot of waiting. Yes, you can spread fertilizer on the fields, but it takes time for grass to grow. Sometimes farmers maybe are praying for rain, other times farmers are praying for sun. You can't fatten up a lamb in a couple of days. And the Middle Eastern farmer had to be patient. Uh, the early rains we read of there were October time. You think of the Middle Eastern sun-scorched hard soil. Uh, the early rains, in a sense, softened up for planting. And the late rains then came in March or April so that the crop could really flourish as it was growing. We don't really talk about the early or the late rains here in Northern Ireland. We just talk about the rain uh, in every season. And we've certainly got it in the way in this evening. But the point is this, just as the farmer lives for the harvest, Christians are called to live for the Lord's return. This ought always to be before us in all that we seek to do. And so in verse 8, James says, you also be patient. He then adds an extra dimension, establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. Now, when we talk of establishing something, we usually think of an organization or a building being established where foundations, roots are put down. Uh, businesses in Balamina will have above their doors established such and such a year, and it's been there ever since. I think I'm right in thinking uh, Connor Presbyterian was established in 1658 in the Lord's mercy. You are still here. Uh, and James is, is calling us to be patient. When he's doing that, he's not just saying, look, have an aimless waiting. He's saying, no, have a fixing of our hearts. 
They're to be secured. They're to be anchored so that they won't get blown around. And if you can remember that central diagnosis that we've come back to time and again, James's concern for this double-mindedness that is evident amongst his uh, readers, this uh, dividedness of heart. The call is for our hearts to be resolutely fixed to the Lord, not dithering. We sang uh, earlier, O to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. We can think of establishing as something that's happened in the past, but it doesn't have to be that, and it's certainly not that here. And that word there, establish, in the original language, is actually the same word used in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where we read that Jesus fixed his eyes on Jerusalem. Uh, He fixed or established his gaze on Jerusalem. And for the next 10 chapters in Luke, he has concentrated intently on journeying towards Jerusalem. There are stops along the way, people to heal, disciples to be taught, but all the while, there's, every once in a while, there's these references to his eyes being fixed towards Jerusalem, where he would willingly go, go to his death for us, and then be raised again for our salvation. Our hearts are to be fixed on the Lord and on his return. And we have this phrase repeated at the end of verse 8 as a motivation to be patient. Be patient for or because of the coming of the Lord. And then there's this little extra bit. It says, this coming is at hand or is near. But here we are, 2,000 years later, and Jesus still hasn't come. And so skeptics have come across this and have challenged and questioned the legitimacy of James here, saying, well, he must have been wrong. It's still not happened. But James was not alone in this expectation that Jesus could return at any time. John, Paul, Peter all teach similarly. Peter's response to this sort of challenge, we see just a few pages forward in in 2 Peter 3, verse 8 and 9. He says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. You know, I said earlier, if we think of things as as God made it, we broke it, Jesus fixes it, I said we might feel a bit lost in the middle. But actually, when we take a step back, and evaluate our place in history. We're not in the middle, not according to the the complete salvation history timetable. We're actually at the end of history. Post-Jesus, ascension, that's how the New Testament speaks of just exactly where we are in the history of the world. Hebrews 1.1 speaks of in these last days. All that needs to happen in history has taken place, but for one thing, the return of Christ. And so in this sense, that's why the New Testament writers speak not of the immediacy of Christ's coming, but the imminency of his coming. It could happen at any time. And that's what makes it near, or James says, it is at hand. And so be patient because of the coming of the Lord. Our next point is be warned because of the coming judge. Verse 9 
It reads, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. James returns uh, to the issue here of our sinful speech, so often repeated throughout this letter. But you might wonder, well, what's that got to do with patience? But then when we think about our lives for a moment, and isn't it the case that when we're in the midst of a stressful situation, we're tempted to grumble and complain? Say in the workplace, uh, you've found something tough, you've found a colleague very challenging, but so much of the time, what do we do? We don't take this out on the person in the workplace. We might say nothing at work, but then it's when we get home and we have a family member, a spouse, wondering, why is my husband or why is my wife getting all upset over a trivial household issue? It turns out the issue is not the real issue. Instead, it's that colleague at work. But we have a tendency to take it out on those closest to us. And James is aware of this, having gone on in the church he's written to. And doesn't that happen? It's amazing the hurtful things church members can say to and about one another. If these things were said in the workplace, you'd be dragged before your HR manager and disciplinary proceedings would happen. Yet in the church, I don't know why it is. Maybe people think it's more of a voluntary association. There's no real consequences. People say all sorts of nasty, sinful, hurtful things to one another. And in the midst of the church James wrote to, in their struggles, they'd been downright nasty to one another. In the midst of pressure from the outside world, the church can also turn in on itself. And like a spouse blowing off because of pressure, that can happen too in our church family. Throughout the letter, James addresses his readers 15 times as brothers. Four of those times, nearly a third, are clumped together in this short passage. I don't think that is accidental. We're supposed to be part of a family. It's not just us as individuals fixing our hearts on the coming Lord Jesus, but as a family. And yet how easily we can become impatient with one another. Impatience at church. Ministers maybe become impatient at times with members. Why aren't they getting it? Why aren't they making progress as Christians? Members with ministers. When's this sermon going to end? No doubt sometimes sermons could be shorter. Elders with those they seek to visit, the person never seems to be in. Members with committee, why is this thing still not fixed? Or this thing that was agreed, why is it still not happened? Maybe there's impatience with the, uh, the, the people who faithfully serve there at the back on the AV desk. There's maybe the odd occasion where the slide doesn't move on quick enough. People might become impatient with that. Older people could become impatient with the noise of younger children, my younger children, uh, in the service. Younger People could become impatient with older generation being stuck in their ways. All sorts of occasions and opportunities for impatience in the life of any church. And yet, what we have in common in the church is that the coming of the Lord will be a glorious experience for us. And what unites us is far more important than what divides us. And so James issues a warning that we not grumble against one another. For if we do, we're displaying the, the behavior, the character of an unbeliever. Think of the Israelites in the wilderness, grumbling against Moses and Aaron, hankering after the vegetables that Egypt had to offer, wanting what the world has to offer instead of a hopeful expectation of the promised land. And most of that generation died and didn't end up in the promised land. And so there is a warning here 
For behold, the judge is standing at the door. Jesus could return at any minute. Do you want him to find you grumbling like an unbeliever? But there's also a word of comfort here for the Christian. For we know from elsewhere that Jesus returning as judge is to punish his enemies and to save his people. So not only the Lord who is in control of all things will come, but the judge who will measure all things and set all wrongs to rights. And this is immensely comforting, especially to Christians undergoing horrible oppression and persecution. Think of our brothers and sisters in far off lands, hearing missionary reports, the likes of Open Doors and others. Places like the Middle East, Africa, Asia, those who even today continue to suffer in much the same way as Christians in the early centuries of the church. And indeed, those James wrote too, how they suffered, how they had been persecuted, how they had had to flee from Jerusalem, becoming refugees, being oppressed then by the rich. What a word of comfort that the coming Lord would also be the coming judge, righting all wrongs. Well, our first point was be patient because of the coming Lord. Secondly, be warned and be patient because of the coming judge. And finally this evening, be patient because of the coming end in verse 10 and 11. Be patient because of the coming end. Verse 10 and 11 again. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James doesn't just say, be patient, struggle on. He gives here another motivating reason to be patient. He points us back to the history of all of God's people. So many of the prophets were rejected in their time. They went before kings who despised their message. You can think of Elijah, Micaiah, Jeremiah. James isn't specific. This is the general theme true of so many. But as time has passed, God's people now consider them blessed, as verse 11 says, because they persevered, because they endured, or as James has it here, they remained steadfast. Now, when you read blessed there in verse 11, don't imagine that this just means happy. It's not happy. Happy speaks to the state of our emotions. Blessed speaks to the objective state of our relationship with God. And that is what matters most. More than any circumstantial pressure someone might be under, no matter how awful that might be. And if there is anyone who knew an awful experience, surely Job is one who comes to mind. And that's who James goes on to, in a sense, give a specific example of in verse 11. I don't know if it's been through Job with you yet or when the last time you heard Job here, but I'm sure you're at least a little bit familiar with that story in the Old Testament. The rich man with wealth, with flocks, with a wonderful family, a righteous man, blameless and upright, who continually turned away from evil. And then we're given a glimpse of Satan in conversation with God and being permitted to, to test Job, convinced that when faced with intense circumstantial suffering, that he will turn and curse God. We see this plays out. Job suffers the loss of nearly everything. His body is overtaken by sores and he's left in a pitiful state. He does ask questions. We're introduced to his so-called comforters, but in the end, he still does not curse God. James is calling for his readers to take note. Those in the church who, though suffering, their suffering is slight when compared to Job, and yet they seem to be grumbling against one another. 
as Exodus 16 tells us, grumbling against one another is actually grumbling against God. And so there is a call to think of Job. But I said this final point was be patient because of the coming end. And this is the case because if you look there again in verse 11, that word purpose, it speaks of the end goal, what's going to happen, what's sure to be the result. In the end, even through painful providence, the Lord is found to be compassionate and merciful, verse 11 says. In the case of Job, that's seen in the restoration of his fortune, even more abundance than before and in more children. But more than that, if you look at the end of Job, those final chapters, we see that through all that's happened, he's discovered a greater bond, a greater knowledge of God himself, which ultimately is all that really matters. Job 42 verse 5, he says this, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I had heard of you, God, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And this evening, what we all need is a greater vision of God. And at times, God uses our trials and afflictions to give us just that. You might be suffering right now. Maybe you're suffering in silence. Maybe few here know exactly what you're going through. But the message here for you is this. Your present suffering is not the end of the story. God will transform your situation when Christ is revealed in glory. God will not waste your pain. The call here is to patience, the fixing or establishing of the heart on Christ's return. That patience, that waiting, is not the passive type, it's a reorganizing of your life in order to be expectantly centered on this glorious event. With this call to patience, there are multiple reasons supplied in this passage. And as we close, here's another drawn from elsewhere in Scripture and drawn by the great reformer Martin Luther. Luther says this, Jesus bore with ineffable meekness and patience all the ill treatment his enemies could heap upon him. Even in his extremity of anguish, he benevolently interceded for them to his heavenly Father. We have here in all respects a perfect and inimitable example of patience, patience of the most exalted kind. In this example, we may behold as in a glass what we have yet to learn of calm endurance and thus be impelled to imitate that example in some small measure at least. In other words, when we exhibit the Bible's idea of patience, we are in a very small way, at least, mirroring the character and conduct of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a glorious end for us as Christians, but in the meantime, life can be oh so hard. We're called to patience. We're supplied with reasons. One final quote from Thomas Manton. He says, trials do not earn us heaven, but they always precede it. Before we are brought to glory, God will first wean us from sin and the world. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. So we're going to sing in closing.